0: 22. odd, however, Cooper uses blank verse freely, and his delight in nature and in homely characters, like the teamster and the mail carrier of the task, shows that his classicism is being rapidly thought out by romantic feeling, in his later work, especially his immortal, John Gilpin, Cooper flings passions aside, gives Pegasus the reins, takes to the open road, and so proves himself a worthy predecessor of Burns. Who is the most spontaneous and the most interesting of all the early romanticists. Life. Cooper's life is a pathetic story of a shy and timid genius, who found the world of men too rough, and who withdrew to nature like a wounded animal. He was born at Great Berkhamsted, Hertfordshire, in 1731, the son of an English clergyman. He was a delicate, sensitive child, whose early life was saddened by the death of his mother and by his neglect at home. At six years he was sent away to a boy's school, where he was terrified by young barbarians who made his life miserable. There was one atrocious bully into whose face Cooper could never look. He recognized his enemy by his shoebuckles, and shivered at his approach. The fierce invectives of his tyrosineum, or a review of schools, 1784, shows how these school experiences had affected his mind and health. For twelve years he studied law. But at the approach of a public examination for an office he was so terrified that he attempted suicide, the experience unsettled his reason, and the next twelve months were spent in an asylum at Street Albans. The death of his father, in 1756, had brought the poet a small patrimony, which placed him above the necessity of struggling, like goldsmith, for his daily bread. Upon his recovery he boarded for years at the House of the Onwins. Cultured people who recognized the genius hidden in this shy and melancholy yet quaintly humorous man, Mrs. Onwin, in particular, cared for him as a son, and whatever happiness he experienced in his poor life was the result of the devotion of this good woman, who is the Mary of all his poems. A second attack of insanity was brought on by Cooper's morbid interest in religion, influenced, perhaps, by the untempered zeal of one John Newton, a curate. With whom Cooper worked in the small parish of Olney, and with whom he compiled the famous Olney hymns, the rest of his life, between intervals of melancholia or insanity, was spent in gardening, in the care of his numerous pets, and in writing his poems, his translation of Homer, and his charming lepers. His two best known poems were suggested by a lively and cultivated widow, Lady Austin, who told him the story of John Gilpin and called for a ballad on the subject. She also urged him to write a long poem in blank verse, and when he demanded a subject, she whimsically suggested The Sofa, which was a new article of furniture at that time. Cooper immediately wrote The Sofa, and, influenced by the poetic possibilities that lie in unexpected places, he added to this poem from time to time, and called his completed work The Task. This was published in 1785 and the author was instantly recognized as one of the chief poets of his age. The last years of his life were a long battle with insanity, until death mercifully ended the struggle in 1800. His last poem, The Castaway, is a cry of despair, in which, under guise of a man washed overboard in a storm, he describes himself perishing in the sight of friends who are powerless to help. Cooper's works. Cooper's first volume of poems, containing, The Progress of Error, Truth, Table talk, etc. is interesting chiefly as showing how the poet was bound by the classical rules of his age. These poems are dreary, on the whole, but a certain gentleness, and especially a vein of pure humor, occasionally rewards the reader, for Cooper was a humorist, and only the constant shadow of insanity kept him from becoming famous in that line alone. The task, written in blank verse, and published in 1785, is Cooper's longest poem used as we are to the natural poetry of Wordsworth and Tennyson, it is hard for us to appreciate the striking originality of this work. Much of it is conventional and wooden, to be sure, like much of Wordsworth's poetry, but when, after reading the rhymed essays and the artificial couplets of Johnson's age, we turn suddenly to Cooper's description of homely scenes, of woods and brooks, of plowmen and teamsters and the letter carrier on his rounds, we realize that we are at the dawn of a better day in poetry, he comes, the herald of a noisy world, with scattered boots, strapped waist, and frozen locks, news from all nations lumbering at his back, true to his charge, the close-packed load behind, yet careless what he brings, his one concern is to conduct it to the destined inn, and, having dropped the expected bag, pass on, he whistles as he goes, light-hearted wretch, cold and yet cheerful messenger of grief perhaps to thousands, and of joy to some, to him indifferent, whether grief or joy, houses in ashes, and the fall of stocks, births, deaths, and marriages, epistles wet with tears that trickled down the writer's cheeks fast as the periods from his fluent quill, or charged with amorous sighs of absent swains, or nints responsive, equally affect his horse and him, and conscious of them all, Cooper's most laborious work the translation of Homer in blank verse, was published in 1791. Its stately, Milton-like movement, and its better rendering of the Greek, make this translation far superior to Pope's artificial couplets. It is also better, in many respects, than Chapman's more famous and more fanciful rendering, but for some reason it was not successful, and has never received the recognition which it deserves. Entirely different in spirit are the poet's numerous hymns, which were published in the Olney collection in 1779 and which are still used in our churches. It is only necessary to mention a few first lines, God moves in a mysterious way. Oh, for a closer walk with God, sometimes a light surprises, to show how his gentle and devout spirit has left its impress upon thousands who now hardly know his name. With Cooper's charming letters, published in 1803, we reach the end of his important works and the student who enjoys reading letters will find that these rank among the best of their kind, it is not, however, for his ambitious works that Cooper is remembered, but rather for his minor poems, which have found their own way into so many homes, among these, the one that brings quickest response from hearts that understand is his little poem, on the receipt of my mother's picture, beginning with the striking line, oh, that those lips had language, another, called Alexander Selkirk, beginning, I am monarch of all I survey, suggests how Selkirk's experiences as a castaway which gave Defoe his inspiration for Robinson Crusoe affected the poet's timid nature and imagination. Last and most famous of all is his immortal, John Gilpin. Cooper was in a terrible fit of melancholy when Lady Austen told him the story, which proved to be better than medicine, for all night long chuckles and suppressed laughter were heard in the poet's bedroom next morning at breakfast he recited the ballad that had afforded its author so much delight in the making, the student should read it, even if he reads nothing else by Cooper, and he will be lacking in humor or appreciation if he is not ready to echo heartily the last stanza, now let us sing, long live the king, and guilt him, long live thee! and when he next doth ride abroad may I be there to see, Robert Burns 1759 1796 after a century and more of classicism, we noted with interest the work of three men, Gray, Goldsmith, and Cooper, whose poetry, like the chorus of awakening birds, suggests the dawn of another day, Two other poets of the same age suggest the sunrise, the first is the plowman Burns, who speaks straight from the heart to the primitive emotions of the race, the second is the mystic Blake, who only half understands his own thoughts, and whose words stir a sensitive nature as music does, or the moon in midheaven, rousing in the soul those vague desires and aspirations which ordinarily sleep, and which can never be expressed because they have no names. Blake lived his shy, mystic, spiritual life in the crowded city, and his messages to the few who can understand. Burns lived his sad, toilsome, erring life in the open air, with the sun and the rain, and his songs touch all the world, the latter's poetry, so far as it has a philosophy. Rests upon two principles which the classic school never understood. That common people are at heart romantic and lovers of the ideal. And that simple human emotions furnish the elements of true poetry. Largely because he follows these two principles. Burns is probably the greatest songwriter of the world. His poetic creed may be summed up in one of his own stanzas, Give me eighty spark, O oh nature's fire. That's a the learning I desire, then. Though I trudge through dub my red blue or cart. My muse, though haemly in attire, may touch the heart. Life Burns's life is a life of fragments, as Carlyle called it, and the different fragments are as unlike as the noble Cotter's Saturday Night and the rant and Ride of the Jolly Beggars. The details of this sad and disjointed life were, better, perhaps, forgotten. We call attention only to the facts which help us to understand the man and his poetry. Burns was born in a clay cottage at Alloway, Scotland. In the bleak winter of 1759, his father was an excellent type of the Scotch peasant of those days, a poor, honest, God-fearing man, who toiled from dawn till dark to rest a living for his family from the stubborn soil. His tall figure was bent with unceasing labor, his hair was thin and gray, and in his eyes was the careworn, hunted look of a peasant driven by poverty and in paid rents from one poor farm to another. The family often fasted of necessity and lived in solitude to avoid the temptation of spending their hard-earned money. The children went barefoot and bareheaded in all weathers, and shared the parents' toil and their anxiety over the rents. At 13 Bobby, the eldest, was doing a peasant's full-day's labor, at 16 he was chief laborer on his father's farm, and he describes the life as the cheerless gloom of a hermit, and the unceasing moil of a galley slave. In 1784 the father, after a lifetime of toil, was saved from a debtor's prison by consumption and death. To rescue something from the wreck of the home and to win a poorer chance of bread for the family, the two older boys set up a claim for arrears of wages that had never been paid. With the small sum allowed them, they buried their father, took another farm, Mossgill, in Knockline, and began again the long struggle with poverty. Such, in outline, is Burns's own story of his early life, taken mostly from his letters. There is another and more pleasing side to the picture, of which we have glimpses in his poems and in his commonplace book. Here we see the boy at school, for like most Scotch peasants, the father gave his boys the best education he possibly could. We see him following the plow, not like a slave, but like a free man, crooning over an old Scotch song and making a better one to match the melody. We see him stop the plow to listen to what the wind is saying, or turn aside lest we disturb the birds at their singing and nest-making. At supper we see the family about the table, happy notwithstanding their scant fare, each child with a spoon in one hand and a book in the other. We hear Betty Davidson reciting, from her great store, some heroic ballad that fired the young hearts to enthusiasm and made them forget the day's toil. And in, the cotter Saturday night, we have a glimpse of Scotch peasant life that makes us almost reverence these heroic men and women who kept their faith and their self-respect in the face of poverty, and whose hearts, under their rough exteriors, were tender and true as steel. A most unfortunate change in Burns's life began when he left the farm, at seventeen, and went to Kirk Oswald to study surveying. The town was the haunt of smugglers, rough-living, hard-drinking men, and Burns speedily found his way into those scenes of riot and roaring dissipation, which were his bane ever afterwards. For a little while he studied diligently, but one day, while taking the altitude of the Sunday he saw a pretty girl in the neighboring garden, and love put trigonometry to flight. Soon he gave up his work and wandered back to the farm and poverty again. When twenty-seven years of age Burns first attracted literary attention, and in the same moment sprang to the first place in Scottish lepers. in despair over his poverty and personal habits, he resolved to emigrate to Jamaica. And gathered together a few of his early poems, hoping to sell them for enough to pay the expenses of his journey. The result was the famous Gilmarnock edition of Burns, published in 1786, for which he was offered £20. It is said that he even bought his ticket, and on the night before the ship sailed wrote his farewell to Scotland, beginning, The gloomy night is gathering fast, which he intended to be his last song on Scottish soil. In the morning he changed his mind, Led partly by some dim foreshadowing of the result of his literary adventure, for the little book took all Scotland by storm. Not only scholars and literary men, but even ploughboys and maidservants, says a contemporary, eagerly spent their hard-earned shillings for the new book. Instead of going to Jamaica, the young poet hurried to Edinburgh to arrange for another edition of his work. His journey was a constant ovation, and in the capital he was welcomed and feasted by the best of Scottish society. This unexpected triumph lasted only one winter. Burns's fondness for taverns and riotous living shocked his cultured entertainers. And when he returned to Edinburgh next winter, after a pleasure jaunt through the highlands, he received scant attention. He left the city in anger and disappointment, and went back to the soil where he was more at home. The last few years of Burns's life are a sad tragedy, and we pass over them hurriedly. He bought the farm in Dumfries Shear and married the faithful Jean Armour, in 1788, that we could write of her, I see her in the dewy flowers, I see her sweet and fair, I hear her in the tune of the birds, I hear her charm the air, there's not a bony flower that springs by fountain, shaw or green, there's not a bony bird that sings, but minds ye all my Jean, is enough for us to remember, the next year he was appointed exesman, i.e. collector of liquor revenues, and the small salary, with the return from his poems, would have been sufficient to keep his family in modest comfort, had he but kept away from taverns. For a few years his life of alternate toil and dissipation was occasionally illumined by his splendid lyric genius, and he produced many songs, Bonnie Doon, My Love's Like a Red, Red Rose, Auld Lang Syne, Highland Mary, and The Soul Stirring, What Wahab. Composed while galloping over the moor in a storm, which have made the name of Burns known wherever the English language is spoken and honored wherever Scotchmen gather together. He died miserably in 1796, when only 37 years old. His last letter was an appeal to a friend for money to stave off the bailiff, and one of his last poems, a tribute to Jesse Wors, a kind lassie who helped to care for him in his illness. This last exquisite lyric: "No word thou in the cold blast." Set to Mendelssohn's music, is one of our best known songs, though its history is seldom suspected by those who sing it. The poetry of Burns, the publication of the Kilmarnock Burns, with the title poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect 1786, marks an epoch in the history of English literature, like the publication of Spencer's Shepherd's Calendar, after a century of cold and formal poetry, relieved only by the romanticism of Grey and Cooper. These fresh-inspired songs went straight to the heart, like the music of returning birds in springtime. It was a little volume, but a great book, and we think of Marlowe's line, Infinite riches in a little room, in connection with it, such poems as, The Cotter's Saturday Night, To a Mouse, To Mountain Daisy, Man Was Made to Mourn, The T.W.A. Dogs, Address to the Deal, and, Halloween, Suggest that the whole spirit of the Romantic revival is embodied in this obscure plowman. Love, humor, pathos, the response to nature, all the poetic qualities that touch the human heart are here, and the heart was touched as it had not been since the days of Elizabeth. If the reader will note again the six characteristics of the Romantic movement, and then read six poems of Burns, he will see at once how perfectly this one man expresses the new idea, or take a single suggestion. A ephon kiss. And then we sever. E. Farewell. And then forever. Deep in heart run tears I'll pledge thee. Warring sighs and groans I'll wage thee. Who shall say that fortune grieves him while the star of hope she leaves him? Me. May few twinkle lights me, dark despair around benights me. I'll ne'er blame my partial fancy. Nothing could resist my Nancy, but to see her was to love her, love but her, and love forever. Had we never laughed as Kindly. Had we never loved a blindly, never met or never parted, we had ne'er been broken-hearted. The essence of a thousand love tales is in that one little song, because he embodies the new spirit of romanticism. Critics give him a high place in the history of our literature, and because his songs go straight to the heart, he is the poet of common men, a Burns as many songs for music little need be said, they have found their way into the hearts of the whole people, and there they speak for themselves. They range from the exquisite O Word Thou in the Cold Blast, to the tremendous appeal to Scottish patriotism in Scots What head W.I. Wallace Bled, which, Carlyle said, should be sung with the throat of the whirlwind. Many of these songs were composed in his best days, when following the plow or resting after his work, while the music of some old Scotch song was ringing in his head. It is largely because he thought of music while he composed that so many of his poems have the singing quality suggesting a melody as we read them, among his poems of nature, to a mouse, and to a mountain daisy, are unquestionably the best, suggesting the poetical possibilities that daily pass unnoticed under our feet, these two poems are as near as Burns ever comes to appreciating nature for its own sake, the majority of his poems, like, Winter, and, Ye Banks and Praise O Bonny Doon, regard nature in the same way that Gray regarded it, as a background for the play of human emotions, of his poems of emotion there is an immense number. It is a curious fact that the world is always laughing and crying at the same moment, and we can hardly read a page of Burns without finding this natural juxtaposition of smiles and tears. It is noteworthy also that all strong emotions, when expressed naturally, lend themselves to poetry, and Burns, more than any other writer, has an astonishing faculty of describing his own emotions with vividness and simplicity so that they appeal instantly to our own, one cannot read, I love my gene, for instance, without being in love with some idealized woman, or, to marry in heaven, without sharing the personal grief of one who has loved and lost, besides the songs of nature and of human emotion, Burns has given us a large number of poems for which no general title can be given, noteworthy among these are, a man's a man for a that, which voices the new romantic estimate of humanity, the vision from which we get a strong impression of Burns's early ideals, the epistle to a young friend, from which, rather than from his satires, we learn Burns's personal views of religion and honor, the address to the Uncle guide which is the poet's plea for mercy and judgment, and a bard's epitaph, which, as a summary of his own life, might well be written at the end of his poems, Halloween, a picture of rustic merrymaking. And, the TWA dogs, a contrast between the rich and poor, are generally classed among the poet's best works, but one unfamiliar with the Scotch dialect will find them rather difficult. Of Burns's longer poems the two best word of reading are, The Cotter's Saturday Night, and, Tam O'Shanter. the one giving the most perfect picture we possess of a noble poverty, the other being the most lively and the least objectionable of his humorous works. It would be difficult to find elsewhere such a combination of the gruesome and the ridiculous as is packed up in Tam o'Shanter. with the exception of these two. The longer poems add little to the author's fame or to our own enjoyment. It is better for the beginner to read Burns's exquisite songs and gladly to recognize his place in the hearts of a people, and forget the rest, since they only sadden us and obscure the poet's better nature. William Blake 1757 1827 piping down the valley's wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again, so I piped. He wept to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book, that all may read, so he vanished from my sight. And I plucked a hollow reed, and I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs every child may joy to hear. Of all the romantic poets of the 18th century, Blake is the most independent and the most original. In his earliest work, written when he was scarcely more than a child, he seems to go back to the Elizabethan songwriters for his models, but for the greater part of his life he was the poet of inspiration alone, following no man's lead, and obeying no voice but that which he heard in his own mystic soul, though the most extraordinary literary genius of his age he had practically no influence upon it, indeed, we hardly yet understand this poet of pure fancy, this mystic this transcendental madman, who remained to the end of his busy life an incomprehensible child, life, Blake, the son of a London tradesman, was a strange, imaginative child, whose soul was more at home with brooks and flowers and fairies than with the crowd of the city streets, beyond learning to read and write, he received education, but he began, at ten years, to copy prints and to write verses, he also began a long course of art study, which resulted in his publishing his own books, adorned with marginal engravings colored by hand, an unusual setting, worthy of the strong artistic sense that shows itself in many of his early verses. As a child he had visions of God and the angels looking in at his window, and as a man he thought he received visits from the souls of the great dad, Moses, Virgil, Homer, Dante. Milton, majestic shadows, grey but luminous, he calls them, he seems never to have asked himself the question how far these visions were or pure illusions, but believed and trusted them implicitly, to him all nature was a vast spiritual symbolism, wherein he saw elves, fairies, devils, angels, all looking at him in friendship or enmity through the eyes of flowers and stars, with the blue sky spread over with wings and the mild sun that mounts and sinks, with trees and fields full of fairy elves, and little devils who fight for themselves, with angels planted in hawthorn bowers, and God himself in the passing hours, and this curious, pantheistic conception of nature was not a matter of creed, but the very essence of Blake's life. Strangely enough, he made no attempt to found a new religious cult, but followed his own way, singing cheerfully, working patiently, in the face of discouragement and failure, that writers of far less genius were exalted to favor, while he remained poor and obscure, does not seem to have troubled him in the least. For over forty years he labored diligently at book engraving, guided in his art by Michelangelo, but inventing his own curious designs, at which we still wonder, the illustrations for Young's night thoughts, for Blair's grave, and the inventions to the book of Job, show the peculiarity of Blake's mind quite as clearly as his poems. While he worked at his trade he flung off for he never seemed to compose disjointed visions and incomprehensible rhapsodies, with an occasional little gem that still sets our hearts to singing, ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, where the youth pined away with desire, and the pale virgin shrouded in snow rise from their graves, and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go, that is a curious flower to find growing in the London street, but it suggests Blake's own life, which was outwardly busy and quiet, but inwardly full of adventure and excitement, his last huge prophetic works, like Jerusalem and Milton 1804, were dictated to him, he declares, by supernatural means, and even against his own will, they are only half intelligible, but here and there one sees flashes of the same poetic beauty that marks his little poems. Critics generally dismiss Blake with the word, madman, but that is only on evasion. At best, he is the writer of exquisite lyrics, at worst. He is mad only, north-northwest, like Hamlet, and the puzzle is to find the method in his madness. The most amazing thing about him is the perfectly sane and cheerful way in which he moved through poverty and obscurity, flinging out exquisite poems or senseless rhapsodies. As a child might play with gems or straws or sunbeams indifferently, he was a gentle, kindly, most inwardly little man, with extraordinary eyes, which seem even in the lifeless portraits to reflect some unusual hypnotic power. He died obscurely, smiling at a vision of paradise, in 1827, that was nearly a century ago, yet he still remains one of the most incomprehensible figures in our literature, works of Blake, the poetical sketches published in 1783, is a collection of Blake's earliest poetry, much of it written in boyhood. It contains much crude and incoherent work, but also a few lyrics of striking originality. Two later and better known volumes are songs of innocence and songs of experience, reflecting two widely different views of the human soul, as in all his works. There is an abundance of apparently wordless stuff in these songs, but, in the language of minors, it is all, hey dirt, it shows gleams of golden grains that await our sifting. And now and then we find a nugget unexpectedly, My lord was like a flower upon the brows of lusty may, All life as frail as flower. My lord was like a star in highest heaven drawn down to earth by spells and wickedness. My lord was like the opening eye of day, but he is darkened, Like the summer moon clouded, Fall like the stately tree. Cut down, the breath of heaven dwelt among his leaves. On account of the chaotic character of most of Blake's work, it is well to begin our reading with a short book of selections, containing the best songs of these three little volumes. Swinburne calls Blake the only poet of supreme and simple poetic genius of the 18th century, the one man of that age fit, on all accounts, to rank with the old great masters. The praise is doubtless extravagant, and the criticism somewhat intemperate, but when we have read The Evening Star, Memory, Night, Love, to the muses, spring, summer, the tider, the lamb, the clod and the Pedal. we may possibly share Swinburne's enthusiasm, certainly, in these three volumes we have some of the most perfect and the most original songs in our language, of Blake's longer poems, his titanic prophecies and apocalyptic splendors, it is impossible to write justly in such a brief work as this, outwardly they suggest a huge chaff pile, and the scattered grains of wheat hardly warrant the labor of winnowing. The curious reader will get an idea of Blake's amazing mysticism by dipping into any of the works of his middle life. Horizon, Gates of Paradise, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, America, The French Revolution, or The Vision of the Daughters of Albion. His latest works, like Jerusalem and Milton, are too obscure to have any literary value. To read any of these works casually is to call the author a madman, to study them, remembering Blake's songs and his genius is to quote softly his own answer to the child who asked about the land of dreams, Oh what land is the land of dreams? What are its mountains and what are its streams? Oh, father, I saw my mother there, among the lilies by waters fair. Dear child, I also by pleasant streams have wandered all night in the land of dreams, but though come and warm the waters wide, I could not get to the other side. Minor poets of the revival we have chosen the five preceding poets. Gray. Goldsmith. Cooper, Burns, and Blake, as the most typical and the most interesting of the writers who proclaimed the dawn of Romanticism in the 18th century. With them we associate a group of minor writers, whose works were immensely popular in their own day. The ordinary reader will pass them by, but to the student they are all significant as expressions of very different phases of the Romantic revival. James Thompson 1700-1748 Thompson belongs among the pioneers of Romanticism, like Gray and Goldsmith. He wavered between pseudo-classic and the new Romantic ideals. And for this reason, if for no other, his early work is interesting. Like the uncertainty of a child who hesitates whether to creep safely on all fours or risk a fall by walking. He is worthy to be remembered for three poems. Rule Britannia, which is still one of the national songs of England, The Castle of Indolence, and The Seasons. The dreamy and romantic castle 1748, occupied by Enchanter Indolence and his willing captives in the land of drowsed, is purely Spenserian in its imagery, and is written in the Spenserian stanza, the seasons 1726-1730, written in blank verse, describes the sights and sounds of the changing year and the poet's own feelings in the presence of nature, these two poems, though rather dull to a modern reader were significant of the early Romantic revival in three ways, they abandoned the prevailing heroic couplet, they went back to the Elizabethans, instead of to Pope, for their models, and they called attention to the long-neglected life of nature as a subject for poetry, William Collins 1721-1759, Collins, the friend and disciple of Thomson, was of a delicate, nervous temperament, like Cooper, and over.